0: Welcome to episode 10 of Imperfect Progress. I'm your host, Ann Guzman. If you're joining for the first time, when you stop in here, you can expect to hear some great conversations with amazing guests, and we talk about topics ranging from sports science, navigating life changes and mindset, and also how to stay optimally healthy so that we don't only have more years here, but we have a great quality of life during the years that we do have. Today's guest, Dr. Scott Lear, focuses on that last area I mentioned of maximizing our health and longevity. I introduced Scott during the podcast, but essentially he's dedicated a huge portion of his life to research on cardiovascular health, in other words, heart health, and today we talk about how excess sitting or a sedentary lifestyle impacts your physiology and also how we can... I guess, organize our environment, whether that be in our homes or even where we live geographically and how these changes can increase the amount that we're moving throughout the day and then how impactful that can be on our metabolism, our health and even our longevity. So in an effort to not be redundant, I won't give away all the goods, but I will say that this episode feels very... Timely, as many of us are moving less due to the pandemic, and it's important to understand the impact of small amounts of movement so that we don't say to ourselves, oh, as if a few minutes of walking will make a difference. Because it will. So, let's step inside and hear what the amazing Dr. Scott Lear has to share with us today. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in, and I truly hope you walk away with some valuable insights for yourself or to share with others. So I'll see you on the inside. All right, I'm excited to learn a bit more about today's topic, as it feels particularly timely. In fact, I woke up this morning to an article in the New York Times from the superb journalist Gretchen Reynolds And she had written about today's topic, which is the health repercussions of excess sitting. So if you're listening thinking, hey, I exercise an hour a day, this isn't relevant for me. Don't rule yourself out because this podcast can still relate to you. And I think we're all going to learn a few surprises from my guest, Dr. Scott Lear today. So Dr. Scott Lear is a professor in health sciences at Simon Fraser University up here in Canada, and he's an international expert on healthy living. His bachelor's was in kinesiology, and he did his PhD focused on cardiac rehabilitation. And Scott has over 25 years of expertise from his working in the clinical and in the research areas of disease prevention and management and he walks the talk right so he's a lifelong advocate of healthy living you'll find him riding to work and swimming in the morning on most days so he really you know he encompasses everything that he learns and teaches about so i'm super excited scott that you're here to join us today and thanks so much for taking the time out
1: oh well thanks a lot ann this is this should be a great conversation
0: oh absolutely so i have to admit that I was not always on board with whole, this whole notion of bite-sized exercise. And maybe you can relate to this, but that's because I was a competitive athlete. So my previous understanding of exercise was I'm either training full on, and if I wasn't, then it was rest. But I never really considered commuting to the store as exercise. And, you know, as, as an athlete training a lot, that's probably because I would think, "Oh, I'm going to drive to the store. I need to rest my legs. But now as I get older and I have a daughter and life has changed and I'm back in school and I'm moving less, I'm, I'm really embracing this whole concept of exercise culminating throughout the day. And I'm really fascinated by some of the research that I've read. So if you're listening, I want you to get ready to learn exactly what's happening in the body when we're sitting for long periods of time, because it's really fascinating and either... And also, sorry, whether standing is a more beneficial option, because I know there's a lot of standing desks out there. So we're going to, you know, look into what the data say on that. And Dr. Lear will be leaving you with some simple, actionable things that you can actually start implementing into your day right now. And the beauty of these things is, I'm going to guess, we'll find out, but they probably don't need equipment. And in other words, they are free So that's a bonus. A lot of us are likely sitting more due to the pandemic, whether we're minimizing our outings or watching more Netflix or housebound taking care of others. Uh, Scott, do you find that you're in the same boat?
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, Since I haven't been going into work, I usually work from home a couple days a week. But I find just even being at work, even though my job is basically sitting at a computer, I would still have this kind of incidental activity, you know, maybe the washrooms further, go to the sink to get some water, or just walk by somebody's office or, or something like that, as opposed to just being in the same spot for hours.
0: Yeah, it is amazing. I've really noticed it as well. I previously would have been driving to campus, which obviously was a lot of a sitting, but even from the walk to the parking lot, And back, like I would accumulate like 4,000 steps just walking around campus. And and now none of that is happening. (laughs) So definitely in the same boat there. So I definitely want to start off just by talking about this continuous sitting. And I was wondering if you could explain to us, you know, what are the impacts on our bodies of the continuous sitting and how is that impacting our health, whether it's heart health or blood sugar regulation and even mortality rates?
1: Yeah, most definitely. So when when you're sitting, like from a high-level population point of view, we see that people who sit more often are more likely, have greater chance of getting diabetes, heart disease, earlier death or shorter lifespan. And there's some interesting studies also that look at TV watching. With TV watching, we're probably seeing not just sitting, but also this kind of mindless eating where people are also eating while they're watching tv as opposed to sitting mm-hmm. when you're at work so what tends to happen when we sit our, and our bodies are extremely efficient so this shouldn't be thought of something necessarily bad but it does become bad when it's excessive so our our bodies want to minimize the amount of energy that we use whenever it can so when we sit it's kind of like the car that shuts off at a stoplight our metabolism slows down because we're not needing uh, as much energy to sit and what happens there are enzymes in our muscles that break down fats in our blood where we would use that fat for energy and they get actually shut down so while that's happening the, the, the fats in our blood, which we need for energy, will stay circulating. And then mm. when we have too much fat in our blood, that also impacts how we use sugar and can prevent the sugar from being used. Now, all of that doesn't happen in one bout of sitting. What does happen is that the enzymes, which are called lipoprotein lipase, which are attached to our muscles, they shut down and they stop breaking down the fats which are in the form of triglycerides and what that enzyme would normally do is break down the triglycerides so that the fat can be absorbed into the muscle and the muscle can use it for energy but if the muscle is not working it doesn't need that energy so it's not going to break down the fats in the blood so then uh, that stays circulating around
0: right so then obviously this is negative for your health in many ways how does that affect heart health obviously it would be something that would accumulate over time but
1: yeah so one of the th- things over time that it does because it inter- it does two things it interferes with how our blood sugars metabolized so we know diabetes is a result of increased blood sugar but what that's mm-hmm. usually a result of too much, Uh, fats in our blood because what happens is fat can compete with sugar for the same receptors on our muscles. So it's kind of like, you know, a door to the house and fat and sugar both running to get in and fat always beats out the sugar. So then the sugar stays outside the house and it stays in in the blood. So that can increase a person's risk for diabetes, but also increases risk for heart disease. And then both the fat and the sugar, if there's too much, and and I keep paraphrasing it as being too much, because we need fat and sugar in our blood to survive anyway. But if it's too much, it can actually affect how our arteries function. And once they start to dysfunction, that makes it more susceptible for things like plaque to build up in the arteries and heart disease. The most common form is atherosclerosis in the arteries of the heart starts to form.
0: Super interesting. I think it's really great that you explained how the increased um, fat in the blood actually is related to diabetes because, you know, a lot of times you just read sugar diabetes, sugar diabetes, but it's also fat. So it's really great to hear someone explain that. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will appreciate understanding that a bit more as well. So that's really useful. Now, is there an inception point where the body starts on this type of downward spiral. Obviously, it's not going to be from thirty to forty minutes. It's not going to be the yeah. specific time, but when you're sitting, you know what's what's too long of a sitting duration. And again, just in context, of course, if you sit one day, but the other six days, you're typically very active. So, if we're talking about someone that's continuously doing the continuous sitting. Is there kind of a duration where a lot of physiological changes are seen?
1: A, a very excellent question, one that I won't necessarily have an excellent answer for. Mm-hmm. Last week, the World Health Organization came out with the new physical activity guidelines and also attempted guidelines around sitting. To answer your your exact question, the result was that the evidence shows that with increasing sitting, we're more likely to get disease and illness and early death. But there wasn't any kind of solid evidence to say, oh, it should be less than two hours a day, or you should only sit for segments of like 30 minutes and, and break it up. All of those mm-hmm. things they mentioned are, are, are good and sitting. And also they t- moved away from the term of just sitting to sedentary behavior because for for two reasons. One, it's the lack of movement that's the concern, not so much the sitting posture. And Mm -hmm. the other thing is that um, for for people who have lower limb disability, they might be sitting a lot more because that's a mobility issue. So they wanted to make sure that it was movement or non-movement that that was the key. But most of us, our non-movement is done through sitting. So it wasn't quite that they could say, here's the guideline, everybody should sit for less than thir- three hours a day or, or be sedentary no more than three hours a day. So it, it tends to be a, a continuum right now. The main uh, probably guidance that I would probably go with is we should probably be, all be sitting less than we are and mm-hmm. we should probably all be moving that more than we are.
0: Yeah, and I really like, You know, these not fancy, sexy kind of guidelines, because it's just like we should all be eating more fruits and vegetables. Now, unfortunately, everyone wants the shiny thing, but you're right. We should all sit less and we should all move more. I mean, those are really simple, but very accurate words to to say. I really appreciate that you mentioned that the WHO used the word sedentary instead of sitting, because you're right, that's much more inclusive. That's great that they did that. I appreciate that. You mentioned something when you talked about that, that instead of just saying sitting, it's about not moving. And I've seen a ton of, you know, how in advertising now on your computer, whatever you look up, that's all you get advertised because all these algorithms. So at some point, I must have looked up a standing desk or something. And so I'm getting all these advertisements for standing desks. But I've read some research to suggest that perhaps standing is actually not much more beneficial than sitting. So I'm wondering if you can do a little myth busting here for us. Is there a benefit to standing at a desk versus sitting or are we being duped?
1: Yeah, excellent question. I would the short answer is I would go with your later a sentence saying that we're we're being duped yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and so when this came up i don't know how long ago when it started to become popular on eight years ago and i had colleagues who oh i've got a standing desk and, and these were also thousands of dollars more than a mm-hmm. sitting desk and then there are some people who got an even fancier one that could change from a sitting to a standing one okay and it came from and it's humans were very black and white and it came from the fact that well if sitting's bad for you then not sitting must be good for you so everything that isn't sitting would be good for you and so standing would be the obvious thing where you could still be at your desk working and you know for, for me i kind of like oh yeah if that was good for me i'd be interested but i'm also kind of Uh, a frugal person i'm thinking i'm not going to spend three to five thousand dollars on a desk unless i know that's really going to help i'll just get some Mm -hmm. cardboard boxes or something and uh, i started looking into it and i'm and thinking i'm sure there's nothing really special about the posture of sitting that makes it so much worse than anything else that position you could be in when not moving and so standing you're still not moving and so, right. so more more and more, and as, as you point out, there's more and more research that's looking at this, and each of them have their own problems, and each of them have similar problems. So most of the time when people think of sitting, standing, and being sedentary, think of calories. People think of calories. Now, you know, calories aren't the end-all or be-all of health. There's a lot more to it, but that's where it tends to to be is that, okay— if we're standing more, are we burning more calories? Yes, maybe in a course of eight hours, you might burn, you know, a dozen, a dozen or a few dozen more calories, but nothing really substantial to say that it's so much better for you. It takes a few more muscles to keep you standing than it does sitting, but you still see some of the same problems because you're not moving. Standing also has its own problems, and we see this in people have jobs like the cashier clerk at grocery stores they're standing for hours on end and so things like there's greater susceptibility for back problems varicose veins that are that's unique to standing if you're doing some sort of fine type of uh, intricate handwork whether it's writing some people find it easier to do that type of thing when you're sitting as opposed to standing Mm -hmm. so there are ergonomic benefits to to sitting as opposed to standing for certain activities but you still have the same concerns in terms of risk for diabetes and and heart disease now where it's beneficial is it's the movement that's beneficial so if you're sitting for a bit and then you stood for a bit and you did that interspersed throughout the day, that's, from a postural point of view, that's probably good because it's not, it's just also not moving for for a while that that our joints also don't like that.
0: Right. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure a lot of people are just looking at their awesome standing desk right now that (laughs) that they spent $3,000 on. Um, But I, I agree that, and this is obviously completely personal, but you know, if I'm writing, I I need to be sitting down. But, but if you have a standing desk with a treadmill under it, that's a totally different story. However, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have one. So I shouldn't say that I'm not really able to, but I've always been amazed at people who can read a full on book on the treadmill at the gym. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I just struggle with that. But I guess if that works for you, it's great. Or if you've jimmied up some bike under your desk that you're sitting at. I mean, I guess there's a lot of options to do both simultaneously, but it just depends on how you're able to focus while doing that. And some people are. I remember one of my old teammates used to study for her. uh, She ended up becoming an anesthesiologist, but she was just studying for med school and she would literally do two hour rides studying, like quality studying. And I was always amazed. So Totally a personal thing, I guess.
1: Yeah, I have um, colleagues. They're they're a married couple, and they do have a treadmill desk at their home. And Mm -hmm. one of them, she's perfectly fine answering emails, reading, doing Zoom meetings while she's on the treadmill. But he says he just can't do it. So it's individual when I'm on a stationary bike, I can probably read for the first 15, 20 minutes. But once I start sweating, like, I don't want to be sweating on my phone or the book, so that it just becomes uh, uh, uncomfortable. But
0: (laughs) absolutely, I think I did a a podcast on hydration, and I'm a heavy sweater, (laughs) heavy, heavy everything. So definitely wouldn't work for me. My computer would be sparking. (laughs) I'm sure I'd have to have some like plastic cover on my keyboard. And that's all just starting to sound disgusting, right? So (laughs) this is definitely not going to work for me. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I want to ask you about, since we're talking a little bit about exercising now, I find this super interesting. And I think this is maybe where I started to be willing to try this bite size exercise, because in my head, I just have this notion that I should go work out for an hour, or half an hour, it should be consistent. And that's probably because I'm used to training, right? So I might have the mentality of of gaining fitness. And actually, that might be another question, because I don't know how this works into fitness. But I have read that if you go and do a good quality, like decently hard midday workout for an hour, but then you sit the rest of the day. That actually could be worse for your health. I mean, obviously it's great that you're working out, but then if you would have just done six, 10 minute bouts of exercise spread out throughout the day. So I would love to hear what you have to say about that because I think this is super interesting because to me, if there's truth to that, then it actually might really help people who are of the mentality of it has to be an hour or forget it? Because now, if it's like, oh, it can be in chunks. Well, maybe I can do that, and then I don't have to throw my workout out the window. So, what would you say about that?
1: Yeah. So, first off, any movement people are doing, you know, if it fits into your life, and the only way you can do it is you, whatever you're working eight hours, you're sedentary, then you go for an hour. That's still better than working eight hours, going home, and sitting for for the rest of the time till you go to bed. So and it's interesting i'm going to go back to if it's okay what you said early on about you know when you're Mm -hmm. a competitive athlete you were you know you probably go out for three to six hour bike rides or or something like that and Mm -hmm. you know i i remember too i i was training you know i was kind of a pseudo triathlete and i'd be be training but also at that time even if we weren't active just like you mentioned walking around campus like most of us were probably taking public transit. We know people who who take transit are more active than those who don't. We're probably walking to, to a grocery store. University and college campuses are huge. And, and so we're probably doing a lot of incidental activity that we didn't realize. And as we get older and, and we progress through our careers, pretty much every industry, regardless of where you start, whether it's like construction or in healthcare as you progress like if you advance through that career you advance into a more and more sedentary position so you're no longer getting that you know if you're on a construction site you know the foreman does less physical work than the the people who are actually making the building and working on the construction site if you're a manager of a, a company you're probably moving around less than, you know, if you're in frontline retail service. So, mm-hmm. so that's also too fits into it is that our, as we age, our sedentary time is increasing and this light activity time is decreasing. Now, going back to your what you're talking about, yeah, I would say the, you know, the ideal would be breaking up your activity throughout the day and then still going for the hour exercise but there have been some studies and it also depends on what you're what you're interested in if you're interested in metabolic health which is how blood fats and blood sugar uh, blood pressure are, are affected you know spreading that hour of exercise in the evening throughout the day it, it's pretty much uh, equivalent and in some ways the meta- your body may be metabolizing metabolizing things better through that sporadic intermittent activity. Our exercise guidelines, you know, this is going back, you know, back to the 70s and early 80s, were telling people, oh, you had to do like 30 to 40 minutes of exercise at least three times a week at a certain intensity. And over time that in the 90s that was changed to uh, accumulate a minimum of 30 minutes per day of moderate to vigorous activity. And you could do that in at least 10 minute chunks. So that could be like a 10 minute walk to the bus stop, a 10 minute walk at lunch and a 10 minute walk home from the bus stop. And then worked in progress to continuous amount of activity. That's since in the, in the recent WHO guidelines, um, one of the recent American guidelines of here is out. They've gotten rid of that 10 minute minimum because there doesn't seem to be any evidence that it has to be in 10 minutes as opposed to like 2 minutes of activity. And right. it seems to from a health point of view. So wanting to be a top bike racer or a triathlete is a lot different goal than wanting to prevent or delay diabetes. And yes. So if um so this notion it's more like the volume that seems important not whether it's done all at once or in bite-sized chunks.
0: Okay. Well, that's good to know. I mean, it's good for for both ways. If you're already doing the hour, that's great, but definitely still try and get up and move around if you're sitting the rest of the day. And if you can't commit to an hour altogether, spread it out and you're still getting benefits for your metabolic health.
1: Yeah. And and I would suggest like what I try to do. And when I say try, because I'm not always successful, but there's this one really nice study that compared people they put them into different groups six hours continuous sitting or six hours of continuous sitting interspersed every 20 minutes with a two-minute walk and then they had two different walking groups a like a two-minute slow walk and then a two-minute moderate walk and what they did for all of those groups is they had them take a sugar solution so basically like a like a, a sweet pop mm-hmm. and they measured their blood sugar and their insulin which helps for the blood sugar to be used in the body over that course of the six hours and there is remarkable difference between in blood sugar and insulin levels between the sitting group had higher um, insulin and blood sugar levels compared to both of the walking groups and there didn't really seem to be a difference between the speed of the walking between those two groups so so even every 20 minutes getting up walking around whether it's the house or the office for for two minutes actually has a remarkable difference than just continually sitting hour after hour so that's where you
0: isn't it amazing i mean i find it amazing and not that i'm recommending minimizing exercise but I find it amazing how little it takes to have an impact that can seriously affect your your life and your health like it's it's fabulous really so it's just that notion of maybe how do we help someone that's not doing anything first get access to this information so i'm glad you're on here speaking about this because maybe one person's listening who is not doing anything but now realizes oh that motion from nothing to something even if i just do two minutes a couple times during the day like i have a flight of stairs in my house or i could just walk to you know here or there i just find it incredible that it's impactful and it's great
1: yeah and and what, what i find like you know Preventing diabetes is obviously great. Preventing heart disease is great. Adding a few extra quality years to our life is, is great. But when we're in the moment, we're probably not thinking, "Okay, I'm going to get up, walk around, and I can." We, we don't feel our blood sugar being used or or our risk for heart disease going down. Where I find it helps me throughout the day, and because we're also very much like instant gratification, right <laughs> and But being, I I find there's a lot of instant gratification in in being active. And like I might be working on a problem and trying to write this one sentence that just doesn't seem like it's working, and I'll, I'll fight in my mind over it. But if I go out and even like a five minute walk and come back, all of a sudden it just seems much clearer than it did. And I could have spent the next half hour sitting there and still not have progressed through that that sentence so that's also where where I see the like the the mental benefits of actually just moving around can, can help our productivity while we're working as well
0: oh I couldn't agree more I have a um and you don't need to have a rowing machine but Brian has a rowing machine so we have it in the basement and this might sound so ridiculous but because I've been reading a lot about this topic and, and wrote an article about three minutes of exercise a day recently I actually have gone downstairs and rode for three minutes and then gone back to my desk. And the first time I did it, because again, I have this mentality that I need to train, right? Now I've really walked myself away from that over time. And it's, I feel like it's really getting cemented right now that it doesn't have to be that way, but it was really impactful because I wasn't in a good mood. I was definitely kind of low. It was gray out. It was raining. I was like, just go downstairs. And I kid you not, just like you just said, after three minutes, I came back and I was completely rejuvenated. And it's not like I was spilling with endorphins everywhere after three minutes, but it definitely woke me up. So for me, I think the mental side of exercise is extremely valuable and a big reason for why I do it myself. You mentioned, you know, all of the movement that we do throughout the day and even I know that you spend a lot of time researching the environment that you live in and by that not only a home environment but the type of community you live in and how that plays into whether you drive or whether you walk I'm wondering if you can it's kind of I guess a two-way question but first I wanted to talk about this non-exercise activity thermogenesis NEAT And how, you know, our everyday movement and living can contribute to our health and even our metabolism. And then after that, I would love if you can speak to the environment that we live in and how we can try and either, if we're moving, move somewhere that is very probably going to positively impact our health because we won't be driving everywhere or how, if you do live somewhere that driving is really necessary, how can you change your environment? But yeah, if we could start by talking about like what is NEAT and how does that work into this whole equation of, of more movement?
1: Yes. And so when we talk about physical activity and exercise guidelines, it's referring to moderate or vigorous activity. So uh, a moderate activity would be a, a brisk walk for most people and then something vigorous would be running cycling at a pace that gets your heart rate and your breathing going up and so everything below that we can still do plenty of activity that's below that so for example like a lot of household chores are not done at a moderate activity but there's still activity so any cut type of movement's activity now the that's NEAT, the non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, so at its basic level, the most basic type of activity that would be referred to as NEAT, it's fidgeting while sitting. So okay. that, and then it, it can go up to things like, as I said, like washing dishes, emptying the dishwasher, putting groceries away, things that wouldn't meet the threshold for your contribution to moderate and vig- vigorous activity during the day, but again, as I said, our, our activities. And mm-hmm. so, again, some of this comes down to where we have the most amount of information is around burning calories, and so the assumption here is that if you're burning calories, it's healthier for you than not. And you know, there's there's some problems with that because. Whether it's food or exercise, it's not just about calories. But people who tend to be fidgeters tend to be slimmer than non-fidgeters. Uh, it might they might drive you crazy, like I'm a fidgeter, uh, <laughs> but they tend to, they tend to be thinner. And there was one of the professors who coined this, he found that the difference for some people could be like five to six hundred calories in a day. Oh, wow. Between those people who are like, uh, not just fidgeters, but, you know, might be like standing up. Um, they might be the one who, more likely to get up from their desk, walk down the hall, chit chat with people, you know, go to the photocopier, go to the printer, that type of stuff. You know, even if they're watching TV, just always mo- moving around. And so there's been some really interesting, like really nice studies where they've put sensors, like people wear these, this like outfit that has sensors all over it so that they can measure. Because uh, if you're wearing like a pedometer or uh, a Fitbit, you could be moving, you could be sitting, and still moving, but it not, wouldn't register on those devices. So they had these sensors, and mm-hmm. so they were getting a sense, getting an idea of how much people were moving. And so, between one of the people who were totally sedentary, and and this type of neat activity was, was quite different. So, a, an example that could be done, like, uh, is when taking phone calls standing up when taking phone calls or putting on a headless headset like i i do that when i can and we'll walk back and forth in the house and i actually find i'm more attentive on the call than if i were sitting Mm -hmm. in front of my my computer so that's where it would fit and it can make a difference in in our metabolism most, most definitely. You're not going to increase your fitness level as a result of that because you it's not at a level that's going to get your heart rate and your breathing going. So, you know, if you're interested in running a 10k, you know, fidgeting isn't probably going to be the best way to to train. <laughs> but it is. <laughs> yeah. But it is a way that does help the metabolism and you know now whether whether those fidgeters, it's a genetic thing, or or it's a learned trait. It's um, it's it's still not quite known, and there's always this case of people who tend to be heavier are less active. But sometimes it's because that individual is heavier that they are less active, as opposed to they're heavier because they're less active.
0: No, that all makes sense, and. I'm thinking, about, I'm laughing, visualizing my daughter when she's watching something. She's only four, but she'll literally be upside down on her head on the couch. And then just like, you know, I'm just like, what are you doing? Like she's just rolling around and I'm just like, oh my God, you can't sit still. But then I think, well, I don't want to force her to sit still because she just obviously naturally wants to move. So I'll, I'll let her move, but absolutely just thought about that when you were talking about the fidgeting. But yeah, I think that's that's super interesting. And I guess there could be um, purposeful fidgeting now, right? If you, you listen to this and you think, okay, I could probably just move a little more. I always ask my friends to meet me for coffee for a walk. You know, some of them like really say they prefer when we sit and we're looking eye to eye. And so I'm like, I'll compromise. I'll be like, well, why don't we drink the coffee and then walk? But I'm the same way. Like I actually, and there is science- behind this actually, that for some people, um, being side by side, you're a better conversationalist than looking someone in the eye. And I can't remember the psychologist who was talking about it, but I thought it was super interesting because the example that she gave was, when you were a teenager in the car with your parents is often one of the best conversations you have versus the ones where they're staring at you on the couch. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because you're in trouble. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I've got uh, teenagers and I can I can uh, attest to that both as being a parent and a former teenager myself. <laughs> yeah, and, and my uh, when 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 we were all working together before the pandemic, I would it was easy for for me to go on walking meetings with my students because I would say, well, I I was planning to go for a walk, so if you want to walk with me, we can meet. Otherwise, I don't have The time to meet so we'll go for a half hour walk and uh and you know i figure there's a numerous benefits i'm going out for a walk i'm encouraging them to be active and maybe that can spill over into some of their habits uh, as well but there's if it's like a one-on-one work meeting um yeah it's it can easily be done walking and i've actually kind of what I've noticed is I, I've tempered it more, but especially at the beginning. And I, I like doing video conferences and Zoom conferences. But what I also found happened was times when I would normally do a telephone conference or telephone call with somebody, it all s- sudden got changed to a Zoom meeting. So that meant I had to sit at my desk. So I started asking right. people. Because, like I said, I'll put a headset on and I'll walk around. And mm-hmm. so, if it's just somebody I know quite well, or I'll just ask, do we really need to be seeing each other? If we could just talk, then, mm-hmm. then I'll, I'll walk around. Because also, if you're doing three or four of these video conferences in the day, that's
0: tiring in, in itself. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. No, I think this is a great idea. And so, now if we think about the environment that we have to walk around in how I know this is a lot of your your focus so I'm just really interested to hear how you're involved in that and how we can change the environment that we're in to best support our ability to move more
1: yeah and I think the best type of activity is the kind that we don't realize is activity or exercise and and that's not to say we can't enjoy exercise if if it's that enjoyment. But there's plenty of examples where people might go running together, and it's their social activity as well. So it's not just the only thing going out for exercise or riding a bike or walking for commuting somewhere. You're it's um, that's kind of utilitarian activity where you have a purpose for doing that activity outside of the activity itself but the type that you kind of don't notice that you're exercising so the exact opposite which a lot of people enjoy doing this but the exact opposite and i'm just going to say the extreme is like walking on a treadmill staring into a concrete wall yeah that that is like you could be exercising but the time might tick away a lot slower than if you were had somebody beside you or there is a tv or you're outside or something like that and for a lot of people we make choices within the environment that we live if we um, live in a suburb where it's just houses all around and there's like the circular streets and cul-de-sacs and so forth where you can't really walk anywhere unless it's to a neighbor's house like if you need to go and get some milk it means getting into the car and driving for that or planning to do it either when you're commuting to or from work or or school something like like that whereas Mm -hmm. if you lived within three four blocks even if you're not somebody who exercises, most people will make that kind of mental calculation and probably really quickly that, you know what, it's going to be a lot logistically easier just to walk down the street, get the milk, than it would be to get in my car, get it out the driveway onto the street, drive it into the parking lot park, and then go into the store. And Mm -hmm. so those choices aren't made around... Whether do I want to be active or not? It's more about what's the most convenient. And so that's kind of how things like we can design our environment. And even simple things like a lot of times now, buildings are built where the elevators are in the center or right near the front door. And if you want to find the stairs, well, good luck because they're in the corner. Mm. But even simple interventions that had a sign pointing to the stairs made it made a difference and, and it, it's a small difference so in these studies i'm thinking about in these office towers like 12 percent of people might use the stairs with that sign it increases it to like 14 or 15 percent so it's a small absolute change but it's you know probably about a 30 percent increase in people walking and so, it's not, it's again coming back to that logistics and convenience. And if most of us can walk up probably two, maybe three flights of stairs faster than standing at an elevator, waiting for it to come, getting in the elevator, and then getting off. But it's the convenience of the elevator being right there that draws us in. And just like in our neighborhoods, we know that communities people who live in communities where there isn't a sidewalk those people tend to be less active than in communities where there are sidewalks and having this mixed density like being close to the retail outlets or being close to work so all of these things can make a difference and i kind of liken it to you know it may not be the best analogy but i always think of these uh, you know these scientific experiments where you've got this mouse or this rat and you've got this maze to the cheese well you could change you could make the um, maze just a straight line and the mouse would go through the straight line but if you could make it all intricate that it takes like you know like five minutes to get through there the mouse will still follow that so we make our so we move within the environment that's provided And, and some of us and it's a minimum who are getting out running getting out cycling a lot of times, I think that's in spite of the environment we live in. Now, the last, this past summer has been a good example because a lot of cities around the world have made concerted efforts to make it easier for people to cycle, mm-hmm. you know, making it safer. So safety is the number one thing why people will or won't cycle in a city. So that's how we concede. It's a great example of how changing the environment, shutting down streets or just the traffic not going, especially in those early few months when we were all locked down, there are far more people out cycling. People were, bike shops were running out of bikes. And so that's how we can see that environment. And, and in the end, as I mentioned in the beginning, we make choices from the options we have so if we make things like the healthier choices easier then we're likely to be more active and and so that's how we might um, might be seeing like especially urban cores of cities more and more designed to make them walkable like this idea of this 15-minute city where you can get everything almost everything you need within a 15-minute walk of where you live
0: yeah that's dreamy. I mean, every time we've moved, and <laughs> unfortunately, we moved a lot, but I don't have like that many criteria, but one of them is that I can hopefully walk to the grocery store because I like that, right? I know it's a it's gonna if I'm working and I'm at my desk, it's gonna force me outside and you're right that you mentioned like you think of you have that quick you know moment where you're like, is this worth getting in my car to drive like it's literally a 10 minute walk so why am I doing that and and by the time sometimes you do drive there if, if there's a crosswalk and a couple lights like it actually is the same amount of time so when you start to figure that out you just figure oh, I'm just gonna walk and you made a really good point about like creating the environment and for cycling in particular because I know I'm in Hamilton, but uh, Toronto is the, the closest major city near me. And I know during the pandemic, they've increased the amount of roads that they've made bicycles safe. And that physical barrier that they put on some roads, like the little pylons, I think that's the final touch that encourages not a cyclist, someone riding a bike to ride their bike somewhere in a city. Because it's just like that safety that it gives you that, okay, of course a car could still go through them, but it's very unlikely they're going to unless they're texting or whatnot. So yeah, that just really seems to attract more people to commute by bike. A cyclist obviously is going to go find some open road, but I'd be afraid to ride my bike in the city of Toronto um, if it wasn't on a designated path because I've been there you know, thousands of times where... You know, even some of the cyclists are going from one corner of a massive intersection to the other, and you're just seeing all this craziness, and it's dark out, and no one has lights on, and it's just, I understand why you wouldn't ride in a city if there wasn't a safe infrastructure, right? Especially if you're not super familiar with cycling, knowing that you have to be, you know, really eagle's eye on doors opening, and, you know, and even if you are a cyclist, still, you know, someone opens a door in front of you. (laughs) it happens pretty quickly. So yeah, creating that environment for uh, Brian manages a bike shop. So you're absolutely right that you can't even buy a bike like you want to get a bike and you call and the answer is, if it's still here when you get here, I hope it's still here when you get here, right? That's how quickly the bikes like there were no bikes all spring all summer, they couldn't keep up with it. There's no trainers right now. So it is, you know, if I could find a silver lining, I feel like a lot of people have gone outside during this pandemic and uh, so many people were walking, right? You weren't allowed to go anywhere in the spring and now we're kind of getting back there again, um, especially in Toronto. So yeah, it's forcing, you know, for sanity's sake and mental health, you have to get out and get some fresh air and walk. But I guess the question is when We move through this you know all those infrastructures hopefully will remain because i know there's also people on city councils and committees that don't want them there Um, and hopefully you know we can encourage that activity to continue because it's true if you build it they will come that's what's been seen with the cycling
1: yeah and um, this is definitely a topic i could probably spend another hour or more talking about Um, (laughs) And and I'm optimistic. I think uh, quite a number of people will continue. It all we'll probably see in a few months, maybe a few months to six months. Some some studies starting to come out looking at how maybe commuting habits have changed, using walking and biking for these utilitarian purposes. My my. I, which is just looking at anecdotal evidence which isn't all that strong but i would i live near a bike route and i think it's far busier now than it was last year this time and so some of those people who uh bought those bikes who or dusted off their old bike to cycle around have kind of got re-energized and it it also becomes like um, like a critical mass it. The more people cycling on a route, the more people walking on a route, the more likely it's going to be acceptable, um, the more likely the infrastructure will be built. And, and there are like, also a number of city councillors who are looking to preserve some of those things and take advantage of creating these quiet streets. Because for the most part, the great majority of streets do not have cars on them except for parking. I, I live mm-hmm. in a residential area. I'm like four kilometers, five kilometers from downtown Vancouver, and you know I'll see more bikes going by than, than cars. I live one block away from the main road, so it's the exact reverse. But these side streets are are really quiet uh, throughout the day and the evening.
0: Yeah, and I would assume Vancouver is uh, very outdoorsy as far as people commuting by bike.
1: Yeah, yeah, you don't have to deal with the the snow as much. And it's it's kind of, I think, uh, a bit of an outdoorsy place, and it just might attract more people to it. Other things that I think play a role into whether people will commute or not is having a safe place for their bike. Uh, right. Like locking up and especially if you can find a covered spot you know, it, mm-hmm. it always frustrates me when I'm cycling to a store and then the, the bike, what they call the bike furniture like the bike lockup, is between the sidewalk and the road and it's pouring with rain <laughs> my bike's there and I walk to the store and they've got this huge awning with tons of space i was like can't you just move that <laughs> Uh, move that um, bike rack closer by, and you, and you know what? Like I don't do anything else about that. But there've been times when I've mentioned it, or I know others have mentioned it to the property manager, and then a few weeks time, oh, the bike rack's there. So it's it's usually not uh, a, a situation whereby they're purposely thinking, oh, we're going to keep all the the, the they might if it, if it's they don't want the bikes too close to the door for obvious reasons. But if there's space, you know, I have found uh, some property managers to be quite accommodating and will either move it or put a new one in so it can be under the cover. And then the other thing, too, especially for people commuting to work, is uh, a place to store clothes or shower facilities. Um, mm. Those make a big deal for whether people will commute or not.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you're in BC, so there's a ton of rain there. But I also, Brian is from Ireland. And when I was in Ireland, I noticed that they have exactly what you just mentioned there. They had created kind of, I guess, a little, almost like a storefront, but you would get a membership and, you know, ideally it would be free, but it was a place to keep your bike and lock your clothes for the day so you could go to work. And because he lives in, he's from Dungarvan and it's just great little community where, You could do everything by bike. You could bike to work from where you live around there. So I thought that was amazing that they had created this facility that you know your bike is safe, you can change. It had showers in it, but it had a membership fee. So I don't know at what point that becomes less attractive, but at least it was there. So I thought that was helpful. And again, BC, Ireland, you're both seeing a lot of rain. So I could see why it makes a lot of sense what you're asking for. And it's amazing that some of the store owners complied with that and realized that it was valuable to their customers. That's really great. I wanted to ask, there's another question before we start wrapping up, but if you could give us some, I guess some practical take homes on how people can take agency over changing their sitting habits. So if someone's listening to this right now, or maybe someone's listening, that's very active, but they know that their mother or father or sister are not very active and they could just send them or share with them some of these insights. What are some things that we can start doing at home today, just within our household that don't require equipment, but can be great like triggers or that we can set up on purpose to get us up and out of the chair if we're just sitting there, staring at the screen hours on end?
1: Yeah, most definitely. The and I wouldn't say, like, I'm perfect at adhering to, to all of these. One of the things that I have, I either use my phone or a cooking timer at my desk, and I'll set it for 20 to 30 minutes, and when it goes off, I'll make sure I get up and walk around. And I'll, I'll usually do that if I'm working on a project that I know might be multi-hour, like Two or three hours, so I don't get lost in it. Usually, if I've got you know three or four different tasks to do over a couple hours, I'll naturally finish one and then just get up, walk around before transitioning to the to the other one. Mm-hmm. With uh, being at home, there's lots of opportunities to do chores, and so that two minute break maybe emptying the dishwasher, folding the laundry, or putting the, the laundry on, or taking it out of the washing machine, put it in the dryer. So that there's those types of things that you can do throughout the day instead of like leaving them all till like the end of the day. Mm-hmm. The uh, I'd mentioned before about having on phone calls, putting a headset now for, for me, I have to get, uh, my next thing would be get a headset for my computer so that I can have conversations like this and, and walk, walk around as well. I I, Mm -hmm. I find that uh, quite helpful. And the, the other thing that I, I do is usually throughout the day, I might do two or three longer walks. So I'll, I'll, I'll schedule them in in terms of maybe not exact time but within tasks okay i'll do you know a couple tasks in the morning and then i'll go for a half hour walk and then i'll do a few more and then do another half hour walk so that i've i'll aim for around because i'll exercise each day as well So I'll aim for on top of that 9,000 steps. And now I don't even carry a pedometer. I'm maybe too obsessive with counting things that I know how many. (laughs) And and also because we've been all in the same place for the last eight months. like um, I'm all walking around my neighborhood. So I know exactly how many steps it is to do this route, how many steps it is to do this route. I, I don't even Take my-
0: you are a pedometer now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're like a walking pedometer yeah.
1: uh, and and then I'll just look for other opportunities
0: oh for sure yeah those are all great I do a lot of um like I use the the second one you mentioned like putting a timer on my phone and I've actually also read that from a focus perspective. You know, it's good to stop every 30, 45 minutes and and take a break as opposed to just slamming through um, three hours. So I think it is good to get refreshed. I think that the kicker there is to not get distracted. So it's like I have to put on the timer, but then not just start doing something completely different and not come back to the work I was doing. Um, Another thing I'll do is I'll, I'll put on a five minute timer. And no equipment. I, I, I'm such a geek. I'll literally I have a yoga mat beside my desk and I'll jump. I just wait for the timer to go. I'm not looking at it. I just keep moving. I'll jump, I'll do some push-ups, I'll do sideways, lunges, anything. I literally sometimes I'm I'm marching. It's so crazy, but I just wait till the timer goes off. and then I sit back down. and so I'm really taking it to heart sometimes that five minutes and I have what maybe, 15 stairs in my house. So I'll just walk up and down them until I hear the timer go off, maybe do some dips off of the side of my couch at the bottom. And yeah, it's just uh, amazing how when you start doing that, like it starts to feel normal. (laughs) Sometimes I just think my neighbors are looking in my window and I'm just jumping around by myself in the back, but it is what it is. And you do, you feel more refreshed. I read an article that you read, you wrote, um, and you mentioned... That you will, instead of having a two-liter bottle of water on your desk, you'll know that you want to drink that much in the day, but you'll do it a cup at a time so that it forces you to go back to the kitchen to fill your cup. I thought that was pretty smart.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, so there's a lot of things that we might think are, are, are efficient, like having that water bottle near us, but then it prevents us from, from getting up and moving around and Mm -hmm. one of the things also that i was thinking and my parents got one of these and it's these so it's a this little pedal machine that right you can sit on your couch or at your desk and you just kind of it's like a pedal stepper almost kind of an elliptical stepper it's really small and um, apparently they're they're quite popular and and they can be, you know, you could be using it while you're sitting watching TV. It's it's low impact, but it's it's more activity than sitting around just watching the TV. And my, my mom seems to enjoy using it each day.
0: That's great. Yeah, a couple of summers ago, a friend and I, um, we had this idea that... <laughs> we thought we would sell to Netflix. <laughs> Talk about thinking big, right? <laughs> because we really thought that that Netflix was, was not doing a social good in that, you know, you know how the TV show goes and you can turn this function off, which we have learned since we have a toddler. And so when the show ends, another one does not start automatically. But it can, right? And so people will binge watch. So it can just go from one to the next. You can skip the intro without touching a button. But we thought, well, this is not good for society. I mean, you're sucking people into sitting for hours on end. So we thought it'd be great if there was some sort of pop up that was like, get up and move, like, and literally showed you what to do for even a minute, because there is so much research to show that that minute can really impact your metabolism and you know get things moving and it's better than not having them in it. But yeah, sometimes I think, you know, something like Netflix or any of these programs that kind of suck you in by going from one episode to the other, I feel like they have a social responsibility to interrupt that and at least encourage some movement. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not done with that idea. Um,
1: <laughs> it sounds like a, a good idea because with, with Netflix, they get your money whether you watch it or not. So
0: Uh, Exactly. And you're probably gonna sit back down and watch it anyways. But why not just get up and then you could you know, you could not have the option or you could subscribe, but yeah, I just realized the idea is is definitely not dead in my head because now I'm excited about it again. (laughs) So yeah, I mean it's it's been about an hour, so we'll start to wrap up. But I always have a last question for my guests. I really loved everything we talked about today. I think I think it's so important because it's applicable to everyone and even active people because I know that I've been guilty of working out and then sitting for 10 hours um, writing or, or doing something on online. So my podcast is called Imperfect Progress and you're an academic, you're a parent, you've been a student, PhD, you've definitely had your share of sitting through all of the, the <laughs> academia. Um, and so I don't even have to question that. I know at some point you, you've been through a lot of adversity in your life um, because that's the way life goes. When I think of imperfect progress, I tend to think about like a thousand things that haven't gone how I expected in my own life. And with some fortitude, eventually I got through them and, and learned that even if it wasn't how I wanted it to be, as Marie Forleo says, everything is figure outable. And I find that with age, that's become clearer, and I'm a bit more able to practice acceptance and give myself, I guess, some time to grieve when things don't work out, but knowing I can pick up and, and move forward. So I find that when, when we listen to someone else's strategies to help us during our own difficult times, it can be really be helpful. And maybe you'll say something that someone else will hear, and next time they're dealing with some adversity, it'll be helpful to them. So, what mindsets and thoughts present for you, like when I say the words "imperfect progress"?
1: Okay, so definitely in, in academia, uh, you need to learn to embrace criticism and think of criticism as your friend because you're always meeting it. It took me for the first; it wasn't for a number of years until, like, my f- publication got accepted in the first journal i'd sent it to and what i mean by that is when we finish our papers we'll send it to a journal and it can be rejected and then you can send it to to another one so that was for the probably the first five years of my career the standard practice was i would send it to one place it would get rejected and i'd send it somewhere else and then it was about five years in that I had this, I can't remember what article it was, and I'd sent it somewhere. And they, like, I didn't have to send it anywhere else. Like, I made some changes, mm-hmm. but they accepted it. So that was, so you get used to being criticized, whether it's through the papers or, or the the grants. And you have to learn how to, to take that and to see it as a way of, making you better and it's kind of like again this idea like uh, adversity can can make us stronger and it's not uh, a small thing because i've seen some people fall by the wayside because they take the criticism as personal or they um, it becomes kind of wears wears them down and i was having a email conversation with one of my students and my strategy because i think we all concentrate on the negative so i'll open um, reviews of something i've written and unless the first line says you know this is fantastic this is the best thing we've ever seen and we'll pay you like thousands of dollars for it (laughs) which it never occurs i'll always focus on the negatives and the strategy that's worked for me is, is i have no idea how not to see the negatives when i do that first read what i do is I do a really quick first read, close whatever it is, the email or the document, come back two or three days later. And for some reason, it's not nearly as bad as I first thought it was. And hmm. That I, Interesting. Yeah. And because we're just so negative focused that we always see, oh, what they didn't like as opposed to what they, they did like. And, um, I find that second read through, when I've had a day or two, uh, just doing something else, I'm not stewing on it, and then just coming back to it, and, and it's like, oh yeah, that's actually not so bad. What they what they said.
0: So mm-hmm. that's-, that's good. It's like you're giving yourself some some space before you have a, an emotional response, almost.
1: Yeah, and I, I, re- and it's and I'm recognizing too that my first emotional response probably isn't the most productive one and so I try to get that over with as fast as I can
0: absolutely no that's that's super insightful that's actually really great advice it kind of reminds me of like dipping your toe into cold water yeah and then when (laughs) you dip it in the second time it's not quite as cold I have no idea why I thought of that when you (laughs) when you said this example and I was like you know it kind of numbs it a little bit but no that's super useful and it is you know I think I'd agree it's something that um, I've also learned with age, you know, to maybe put a pause before you respond the first time. So it's valuable for me to even think of it academically because, at some point, when I can actually do my research with COVID, <laughs> and I do hand that in, I'm going to remember that when I see uh, a first response. So thank you for sharing that insight. That's really useful. Uh, this has been super valuable. I really appreciate everything you've shared with us today. I think it's super practical and and it really you know, made me think about the environment I live in and, and how I move around. And I think I'm going to think even more about little ways. I really liked what you said about the laundry. I hate doing the laundry, so I'm not going to lie. But um, <laughs> no, I didn't I say so. I liked it. Uh, you no, know, I know. I know. But if I think of another chore, it'd probably be like more truthful for me. But doing that Instead of waiting till like five, six o'clock, like if I know the dishwasher's full, I should just get up and do it during one of these little breaks that I have. And actually, that would probably feel really nice at the end of the day as well. But overall, I really appreciate all of your insight. That was fabulous. And I want to ask you, where can listeners learn more from you? I know you have a blog and you're on social media. So could you share those with us? Yeah,
1: I have a blog that I post once a week. It's called Feel Healthy with Dr. Scott Lear. Its web address is drscottlear.com. And then uh, I'm active on Twitter and Instagram. And my handle is at drscottlear. So pretty easy to find and
0: your podcast you have a podcast as well yeah
1: i'm not as uh consistent as i'd like to be with the podcast but the podcast is the same name as my blog and i post my podcasts on my uh, blog page but they're also on apple and and google and spotify as well
0: i'll say thank you again for joining me and i really appreciate you taking the time today oh
1: well thanks a lot and it's been my pleasure
0: okay take care bye Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. I think this episode may be a great one to share with any friends or relatives that we might know that could use some incentive to just move more. Obviously, that's the take-home message, and maybe some of us are completely already sold on moving a ton, but that doesn't mean we might not know someone who isn't in the same situation as we are. We also touched on the fact that it's not only the physical benefits, but also the positive mental rewards that we can feel when we add more movement and nature throughout our days. And maybe someone out there needs to hear that. So if you're listening, I'd be super grateful if you could comment on the podcast, subscribe, if you enjoy what you hear by going to Apple podcasts and also definitely feel free to leave constructive criticism or positive feedback as personally, I'm very open to what listeners have to say so that I can improve my podcasts or even elaborate on what is being enjoyed already, right? If I know what you're loving, yeah, I'm going to give you more of that. So don't be shy. Let me know what you think. Uh, We are heading into the holiday season, so I hope you all have a safe holiday and find ways to connect with one another during these times. I know they're not typical. Personally, I'll be back soon with a fresh new episode on a topic related to peak performance in athletes, so stay tuned for episode 11. And thanks so much again for being a part of the Imperfect Progress community. And remember, we just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. We've got this. Stay present, stay hopeful, and we will get through these times. So until next time, have an amazing day.